His other great quote is, be fearful when others are greedy and greedy when others are fearful. And Potter is doing exactly that, right? Yeah, he's, he's doing what he should do. We should yeah. go Potter, go Potter. <laughs> Welcome to Pennies and Popcorn, the show about real money lessons from the world of TV and movies. With your hosts, Carla Cash and Robert Davidson, a couple of personal finance geeks and movie lovers. Well, the holiday fun continues this week, Robert. Are you ready for It's a Wonderful Life? I mean, does it have to be on every year? Okay, give it to me straight. How do you feel about this movie? So AFI puts out a top 100 movie list every once in a while. And in 1998, they ranked this movie as number 11. It dropped nine spots in their 2007 list down to number 20. I don't think it's in my top 100. Oh, that's criminal. I am with the American Film Institute. I think it is just an absolute treasure and the ending makes me tear up every time, like no matter how much I know what's coming or how much I try to steel myself to it, uh, it just completely gets to me and I get teary-eyed every time. But apparently Robert has a heart of stone and we, we knew this a long time embodies ago. Mr. Potter. This is Mr. Potter reincarnated sitting to my right, ladies and gentlemen. So everybody, everybody say hello. Nice to meet you all. <laughs> um, no, it just doesn't do it for me. It's so cheesy. Yeah, it's so over the top. It is, but I can do with a little cheese. I'm a, I mean, I like, I like all kinds of cheese. I like brie cheese. I like a nice Gruyere, feta cheese crumbles. I'm, I'm all on board with cheese. It's just going downhill, folks. <laughs> wow, this is bad. No, it's, it's so cheesy, so sappy, and I think the way that they approach the challenges that they face throughout the movie just seems a little bit off. Well, we have to keep in mind that this film came out in 1946. Yeah, they couldn't Google how to solve things. That's true. Yeah, so it it shows its age in a lot of ways. There are some like problematic racial things. There's a lot of problematic gender things. Uh, so I understand not loving it from that perspective. But if we put on our, okay, we understand it was 1940s glasses, there's still a lot to love about this film, and it is just beautifully done, and it's a lovely sentiment. Well, I don't think I'm wrong. We should look at how contemporaries viewed this movie. Okay. So you think it's a wonderful life. It's a Christmas success. We see it every year. Everybody knows this movie. In 1947 or whenever it was that it came out, they lost $525,000 from the production studio. Like, they... They lost money on this. I think it made $3.3 million in its initial box office run, and they spent almost $3.2 million to make it, plus whatever they spent, probably half a million dollars advertising it. It was a flop, folks. Yeah, box office flop. But I do think sometimes really great films do struggle at the box office before people realize their genius a little bit down the road. So I don't... Uh, I don't know that that affects my analysis of the movie, Robert. Apparently, again, just channeling Mr. Potter over there, you're all about the commercialism. If it doesn't do well commercially, you don't like it. Did you know that Mr. Potter is played by Drew Barrymore's great uncle, I think it is? Yeah, isn't that wild? Yeah, she definitely comes from a showbiz family, and it's got some pretty deep roots. So that's a crazy fact. Yeah, so like when you think of E.T., think of Mr. Potter. 
So the character, Mr. Potter, I think at some point in the movie, he's referred to as Henry and, or no, I think like the desk plate thing that he has on his desk says Henry, but they also refer to him as Herbert at some point in the movie. All I know is that to me, when they referred to him the first time, it for sure sounds like Harry. And so to me, he's Harry Potter and that's how I'm going to call him. It did sound like Harry. Yeah, it totally did. Do you think? You think J.K. Rowling just stole that? Probably. Deep down? Probably. Maybe un- subconsciously? Yeah, I think so. There's no other explanation for it. So there's like bajillions of fun facts about this film. We could do nothing but just sit here and cite fun facts all day. But I do have a couple that are too good to resist. One thing that I didn't know that I feel like is kind of a juicy tidbit is that Jimmy Stewart, who's obviously the leading male role, Uh, playing George Bailey, was apparently the George Clooney of his day in real life. He was like an avowed bachelor, dated all of the famous starlets in real life, and didn't get married until he was in his 40s. So basically, George Bailey is George Clooney in real life. That's what I got. The fun never ends. (laughs) Also, in defense of my position of loving the movie, no less than Steven Spielberg is on my side. He has cited this as one of his favorite films of all time. Just because you can make a good movie doesn't mean that you have the same good taste that Mm -hmm. I do. Yeah, actually, I feel like it does. And then finally, this is a very uplifting fact, I think. There's a lot of fake snow in this film. They filmed it in like the dead of summer. In fact, that famous scene where George Bailey is contemplating suicide and thinking about jumping off a bridge into like icy water, he's sweating profusely because it was like 90 degrees in that scene in real life. So they used like 6,000 gallons of real snow. Here's what's happy about it. Unlike a lot of other movies that were using fake snow at that time, like The Wizard of Oz, they did not use asbestos for the fake snow. I don't know if they had actually figured it out by that time or if they just got lucky and used something else, but they were using something called fomite mixed with just plain old soap and water. And also it apparently was much quieter on set than a lot of the other products that had been used for fake snow, which made for a good filming experience. They had not figured out asbestos was horribly toxic and dangerous for everybody at that time. Not in the 1940s, unfortunately. We had many more decades yeah, of asbestos. No, that's, that. Yeah, obviously that's true. So I'm reflecting on like asbestos lawsuits and stuff. Um, but I think we'll just call that a stroke of Christmas luck then that they, they got lucky with that one. So George Bailey was happy to jump into that uh, suicidal river that he was going to hop into, which, by the way, was clearly not going to be a particularly successful suicide attempt since he voluntarily jumped in to go save somebody in the water. That's true. So I guess we should back up a little and do a brief plot summary for anybody who hasn't seen this movie every single Christmas time each year. So the movie centers around the character of George Bailey. We first meet him when he's 12 years old, and it's kind of the story of him growing up, and his father runs a building and loan, like a small loan organization. What's the right word for that? Yeah, I think you can buy shares into this building and loan group. Uh, It's located in Bedford Falls, New York. Well, I guess they don't really say a state, but yeah. it seems like it's in the New the York area. The surrounding cities are in, in New York, so yeah. That's right. And uh, some people in Seneca Falls seem to think that that's where it was 
inspired from. They they've, have a festival there every year. Yeah, but... they've claimed it. Whether or not it's true, it doesn't yeah. matter. Seneca Falls is like, this is us. We're Bedford Falls. Anyway, keep going. So George Bailey, we see him growing up. His father works and owns this building alone. And he really wants George to take over someday. But that's not really what George has in mind for his life. He wants to, quote unquote, build things, go off to school, have grand adventures, travel, see the world. And through a series of circumstances, he ends up doing exactly what his father wanted and actually taking over the building alone. He gets married. He has four children. And life is good, but it's not exactly what he dreamed of when he was a very young man. And then tragedy strikes. The building alone, through the dotty old Uncle Billy, loses $8,000, which was an astronomical sum of money at the time, enough to wipe out the building alone. And George is just completely distraught, doesn't know what he's going to do, feels like he's facing prison potentially, and contemplates suicide. And this is when the movie really like kicks into high gear and the part that, people, that most people remember, I think. George is visited by an angel who gives him the gift of seeing what life would be like if he had never been born. And through that glimpse of an alternate reality, he realizes he's got it pretty darn great and comes back to discover that he's just delighted with the life he left behind, even with all its many problems. So it's a wonderful life after all. Hence the title of the movie. Yeah, the chief protect the chief antagonist in this movie is you know this Harry Potter guy. Harry Potter. And uh, our first clip is young George Bailey. He's in his father's office, and you can hear a disagreement or discussion between uh, George's father and Mr. Potter. Did you put any real pressure on these people of yours to pay those mortgages? Time's up bad, Mr. Potter. A lot of these people are out of work. Well, foreclosed. I can't do that. These families have children. Uh, not my children. But they're somebody's children, Mr. Potter. Are you running a business or a charity war? Well, all right. Not I'm... with my money. Mr. Potter, what makes you such a hard-skulled character? You have no family, no children. You can't begin to spend all the money you've got. Oh, I suppose I should give it to miserable failures like you and that idiot brother of yours to spend for me. He's not a failure. You George, can't say George. that about my father. George, You're George. not. You're the biggest man in town. Run along. Bigger than him. Run along. Bigger than everybody. I think it's funny that he does not defend his idiot Uncle Billy, though, because that guy is a total screw up. He is kind of indefensible. Yeah, pretty much the worst. Does he have any? I mean, I guess he's kind of sweet, but he's like he's got a pretty serious drinking problem, which he makes no efforts at uh, affecting. He seems to have an abominable memory, which makes for pretty bad banking practices. Yeah, I don't know why they have him in such an executive position inside the bank. Like, seriously, get get somebody else. Yeah, nepotism should not extend to the point of like driving the business underground, which is eventually what Billy very nearly does, right? So the thing that I think is really interesting about this clip is the tension between these two characters. On the one hand, you've got Peter Bailey, who is just like, give people more time. They're going to come up with the money eventually. And then you've got Mr. Potter, who is just a hard-nosed, we signed a contract, you owe us this much money on this date, and if you can't do what you say you were going to do, then I'm going to foreclose on you. Where is the discussion in this? We had an agreement, we're sticking to it. That's all there is to it. This, to me, is the primary reason that I would never want to be a landlord, because I think I would really struggle 
to be Mr. Potter in this situation. I have, I think, more Peter Bailey tendencies in me. But at the same time, I can't disagree with Mr. Potter. I mean, the world would completely fall apart if everyone was just like, don't worry about it, just pay when you can, pay what you can, right? And didn't follow through on their contracts whatsoever. So I sympathize in some ways with Mr. Potter, at least at this point in the film. But also, I totally get where Peter Bailey is coming from. And that's why I would never want to be a landlord, because I'm pretty sure I would give in to my Peter Bailey instincts. It's a real problem. Um, I think most people don't know the numbers on this, but about 10% of people have had a foreclosure, not a foreclosure, an eviction, excuse me. Or, or been threatened with it, yeah. Yeah, so... If you are a landlord and you do it for very long or have very many properties, you're virtually certain to run into this unless you're in some, well, I would imagine even it doesn't really matter what income echelon you're looking at, right? Yeah. The the more expensive the place, the easier it is for somebody to run into trouble and not be able to pay for it. So it's it's trouble no matter what. And yeah, it's part of being a business person, right? You sometimes have to do things that are a bit uncomfortable and unpleasant. Yep, and it's just plain old hard to do. There's no getting around it. So I don't know where the happy medium is between these two people. It probably lies somewhere between their two positions. And Mr. Potter does turn out to be just an abominable human being, as we learn later in the film. What I want to know is if he forecloses on all these people, right? It seems like there are a bunch of the the tenants, or I guess the homeowners in the building and loan, who are behind on their payments, if you go foreclose on all of those people, Bedford Falls, as charming as it's presented in the movie, doesn't exactly seem like it's a bustling home of industry where there's tons of other people ready to go pick up that distressed property for a reasonable amount. I think the building alone is going to take on this effectively distressed asset, right? A home that is is decreasing in value and having to sell it to somebody who can't pay full market price. I don't think that Mr. Bailey is totally wrong in his decision not to just go sell the home or to go foreclose on it. I don't I don't know who he's going to sell it to. That's completely true. Potter is being very narrow-minded here in thinking that foreclosure is some sort of magical solution and that there will be a buyer to come swoop in and save the day and pay exactly what the property is worth or what they sold it for initially with the the amount of the mortgage or more. Well, I I suspect what he's ultimately saying is that, Bailey, you're too damn nice, and you don't run this like a business. You're in trouble, and you want my money to help bail you out? I don't want to have a... I don't want to be a shareholder in your business. I don't want to own a slice of this thing that you can't seem to manage very effectively yourself. Yeah, and that's a fair position. I would be very hesitant to invest in our real estate investment trust, a REIT, if I knew that the owners of it were just extremely kind-hearted, forgiving people who just let people miss payments all the time. I mean, that's not good for shareholders. So it's all a balancing act, right? There's no one right answer of we're going to make sure that these people get to stay in the home no matter what versus we're going to basically screw over the shareholders and like take their money and give it to these other people when that wasn't what they planned on at all. So somewhere there lies a happy medium. So Potter has all this money, right? Mr. Bailey is 
given him some grief about him having more money than he can spend and doesn't have kids to leave it to or anything like that. No family to, to spoil it on. What, what do you think about this? Well, I tend to think it is a morally wrong thing to do to accumulate too much wealth. I realize that's not a super popular opinion. Um, I'm very much pro-capitalism, but I think capitalism to a point, right? I think at some point, prioritizing the accumulation of wealth in the hands of a very small amount of people leads to bad results. So that's my take on it. Now, I don't know exactly how much money this Mr. Potter had, whether he was at that point where it would just would be considered absurd. Like, look around, man, there's people really suffering and you have money that you can't even imagine spending because you just have too, way too much of it. I don't know if he was at that point or not. Probably not, I'm guessing. But I think it is something worth thinking about. And Peter Bailey is raising a fair point of why do you need more at this point? You're putting the squeeze on these little people who are struggling when there's just no no more benefit to you left. He might be putting the squeeze on them in other parts of his life, but at this moment, he's just putting the squeeze on Peter Bailey. Well, it's indirectly putting the squeeze on the other people, right? I mean, Peter Bailey needs to put the squeeze on the little people in order to pay Mr. Potter as an investor. So it's all getting back to those folks. Did he need to pay Mr. Potter or was Mr. Potter, was he going to Mr. Potter for a bailout? I don't think that's clear at this. Yeah, I don't think that's clear. Okay. Well, it doesn't matter because I think Mr. Potter is awesome. I got no problems with this guy. <laughs> okay. Well, maybe okay. not totally awesome, but mm-hmm. um, I don't think it's wrong for him to have all that money. And who knows? When he dies, he doesn't have any heirs. What's he going to do? Like, just burn it? Well, maybe he is planning to accumulate a large stack of money and then donate it to charity at the end of his life. There are some prominent billionaires who are planning to do that exact thing in real life today. And I guess I still have some hesitations about it because there are a lot of needy people right now. But on the other hand, by holding it and investing it wisely, it's going to continue to grow and grow. And the future potential benefit of that could be enormous. So I do think this ties back to a quote that we see featured in the film. George Bailey keeps this on like a plaque in his office. Apparently it's something that his father said, which was, all you can take with you is that which you've given away, which I do think is kind of a nice idea, right? At at the end of life, the only thing that's really going to matter to you is how you helped other people. And I think kind of by extension of that, how happy you are, right? The more we help others, the happier we feel ourselves. So I think there's a lot of wisdom in that quote. And Mr. Potter could probably stand to have a plaque like that in his office. I'm sure Mr. Potter feels like he's providing a valuable service to the community. Think about all the people who might have been unhoused, who were able to get stable housing, paying him whatever exorbitant rental rates he was offering. Yeah, I mean, it's made pretty clear in the film that he's like a slumlord, right? He's renting people horrible, horrible places with like barely tolerable living conditions at astronomical prices because he can So, I don't think we want to make an idol out of Mr. Potter here. So harsh. (laughs) All right. Well, before we move into the next clip, let's give you a little context. Um, George's father dies. He takes over the business. 
Uh, he defers his dreams of going and traveling, and he hopes to basically trade off with his brother when he finishes school and have the brother come back and run the family business. That doesn't really happen. Uh, and instead, George continues on. He does fall in love with this uh, girl that uh, was his brother's age that, that he met. And Mary, they end up getting Mary married. Hatch. Yeah, he marries Mary. <laughs> and um, they're supposed to go on their honeymoon, right? They're leaving. They're on their way to the train station. And they notice a run on the bank and a whole bunch of people outside of the savings and loan trying to break the door down and get in. And uh, what we hear is the discussion that follows when he opens up and lets them come inside. You're, you're, you're thinking of this place all wrong, as if I had the money back in a safe. I, the, the money's not here. Well, your money's in Joe's house. That's right next to yours. And in the Kennedy house and Mrs. Maitland's house and, and a hundred others. Uh, you're lending them the money to build, and then they're going to pay it back to you as best they can. Now, what are you going to do, foreclose on them? Old man Putter will pay 50 cents on the dollar for every share you got. 50 cents on the dollar? Yes, cash. Now, listen to me. I, I beg of you not to do this thing. If Potter gets a hold of this building and alone, there'll never be another decent house built in this town. Joe, you had one of those Potter houses, didn't you? Well, have you forgotten? Have you forgotten what he charged you for that broken-down shack? Here, Ed, you know, you remember last year when things weren't going so well and you couldn't make your payments? Well, you didn't lose your house, did you? You think Potter would have let you keep it? Can't you understand what's happening here? Don't you see what's happening? Potter isn't selling, Potter's buying. And why? Because we're panicky and he's not, that's why. Still feeling good about your uh, praise of Mr. Potter over there? Go Potter. Go Potter. <laughs> okay, so a lot to unpack here. First of all, there's been a run on the bank, which in turn has caused a run on the building and loan, where people don't really keep their money, they invest their money, right? So he is explaining why he can't just hand it all over. And I think this maybe is something that some percentage of the population doesn't understand. This is true of banks, and it's true of any kind of investment vehicle. Banks are not just taking your money and locking it up in some giant vault somewhere and waiting for you to come knocking on the door and asking for it back. They are investing that money somewhere, just like the building and loan has invested money in building these houses and giving out mortgages. So if everybody goes to the bank all at once, and says, money, please, I'd like to take out my money, the bank is in serious trouble. That's called a bank run, and it just doesn't have enough cash lying around to meet the demand of every single customer that it has. This used to be a huge problem. Yeah. Right? People would come up, and whenever there's any sort of financial instability in the markets or in the local economy, you didn't have these big national global banks like you do today, and if they didn't have your money and maybe they'd made bad investments and those investments were losing value and everybody wants to pull out before there's a chance for it to recover, whew, it's a, it's a big problem. And you might be left, you might, if you don't hurry down there to join in the fray and get your money out before they run out, you might not, you might not get it. Yeah. So what the United States government has done to alleviate this concern is they now ensure all bank accounts, or well, I shouldn't say all. I think there are some very, very small banking institutions that are not FDIC insured. But the vast majority of banks in America are FDIC insured, which means that for any individual account that you hold up to $250,000, if there is a run on the bank or if the bank goes under, the government will say, calm down, 
will pay you back whatever you had in there. I think I'm going to make a slight correction. Correct away. It is $250,000 per depositor. So if you and I have a joint account, if we had $500,000 in it, we'd be covered. However, if we had two accounts, um, that we were two joint accounts that had $300,000 each in them, we would only be covered for $500,000 total loss. Yeah, no, so, that, that's a good point. Hopefully this doesn't matter for anybody because why do you have that much money just sitting in a bank account? What are you doing? Yes, if you have that much cash laying around, you should be investing in people. Yes. <laughs> so that is the basic idea of what a bank run is and why it can be so scary. They are not completely eliminated. The idea of a bank run can certainly still happen. These days, we have what are called silent bank runs, which are actually even scarier So it's the idea that most banking is done online these days, right? When was the last time most people went to a real bank? It's pretty infrequent these days. Because everything is completely online, what that means is that these bank runs can just be sort of invisible and you don't have these hordes of physical people anymore. You have everybody dashing to their computer, clicking sell, 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 withdraw, withdraw, give me my money as soon as possible. So these silent bank runs don't have the physical limitations that the old timey bank runs used to have, right? You don't have people trying to like cram through a doorway and standing in line, which can make them even more dangerous because they can be um, much more, they can happen much more quickly. So it just sounds bizarre to me though. Like, I don't know what would cause that kind of panic because of the FDIC, you know, insurance that's there. Your bank can go under and your money's covered. Like what's the rush? What, Why? Well, banks do still fail, and that is sometimes the result of a run on a bank. So we saw a little bit of this in the 2008 recession. So it's not impossible. It still could happen. Yeah, but I still still don't understand why. Well, it's the same reason the stock market crashes at random times without any real explanation, right? It's just herd mentality. All it takes is a few of the right people that have the right kind of influence to get publicly scared and... You got mass pandemonium. Well, I mean, there's there's a reason why people are concerned about taking their money out of the stock market when it's plummeting. They're afraid they're going to lose their money. But I mean, first of all, they're wrong. But second of all, like that's not a real risk with the bank. It shouldn't be. Pe- it shouldn't be. What was that quote from Men in Black? Like, a person is smart, but people are stupid or something like <laughs> yeah. that? Yeah. No, I think that's very fair. It's uh, that sort of mob mentality that can kind of take over and people act fearfully. So one of the things that isn't in the clip that we shared with you was what George said before this. Some people were asking for their money and he said, okay, well, I can get it to you in 60 days. You sign a contract. That's the way this works. You put in your money. uh, I don't have it here. And I got to have time to go sell off some assets and go collect that money and get our revenues and we can pay you then, which is interesting because everyone is treating it like a bank. The reason why he doesn't want these people to go take their shares down to Potter's house and get 50 cents on the dollar. I guess one is that he cares about them and doesn't want them to waste their money because their value shouldn't have plummeted the way that they think it has. And two, he just doesn't want Potter to have a bunch of shares and have a chance of taking over and taking control of being a majority shareholder. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Yeah, I mean, Potter clearly is trying to buy investments in the building alone at a very discounted price. And have a big stake in the company and potentially even gain control of the company as a large enough shareholder. So Potter is 
like taking advantage of a honey of a deal at this point, right? He's just sitting pretty because he's got plenty of cash reserves. He's not afraid of running out of money and all these other people are. And he's like, well, come to me and I'll buy these valuable things you have for (laughs) pennies on the dollar or I mean, 50% on the dollar, but still that's, that's a huge discount. Yeah, I'm, I'm reminded of some of the Warren Buffett quotes out there that, you know, the stock market's the only store in town where when everything goes on sale, people run for the exits. Yeah, and his other great quote is, be fearful when others are greedy and greedy when others are fearful. And Potter is doing exactly that, right? Yeah, he's, he's doing what he should do. We should yeah. go Potter, go Potter. <laughs> he is definitely following Buffett's advice. He is being greedy when others are fearful, but... I mean, that's not a particularly moral thing to do in this particular context, right? This is like a small town, everybody knows everybody, and these people are just temporarily afraid for like no good reason whatsoever. But isn't that what a stock market, you know, tumble is? It's just less local? Should we care more because the people happen to live near us and not about the people who live far away? How heartless are you, Carla? And you're calling me Mr. Potter. (laughs) I, I mean, I, that's a valid point, but I guess it seems like people should be better informed in this day and age. And if they're not, I sort of feel like... You should take advantage of them, take advantage of their ignorance. not taking advantage of them, but it's just wow. they have access to the same information that I do. Why haven't they made a better decision? I don't know. I used to think you were nice. <laughs> You're the one over here defending Mr. Potter. No, I think he did the right thing in this instance, and it's what we should all do. And it's so hard because it's the opposite of what the mob is doing, right? You feel like you are going upstream when everyone else is taking the easy path of getting out and liquidating when you really need to stick around. And yeah, when, when trouble's brewing, if there's not any underlying thing beneath that, it's the time to jump in. Yeah, can't disagree with that. When the market is down, the general wisdom is that it's a great time to buy. So I uh, am certainly not arguing with that. Just still think Potter's a jerk. All right. Well, (laughs) the Baileys and the building alone survive this crisis. So does Potter's bank and everything else that he's a part of. And after a few years of their successful businesses competing, people let Potter know that George Bailey is actually kind of a threat. Right, he's doing okay. He's he's taken business away from him, and Potter's a little bit scared. And he invites George Bailey over, and uh, wants to make him an offer he can't refuse. Young man, twenty-seven, twenty-eight, married, making say forty a week. Forty-five. 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 Out of which, after supporting your mother and paying your bills, you're able to keep say ten if you skimp. A child or two comes along, and you won't even be able to save the ten. Now, if this young man of 28 was a common, ordinary yokel, I say he was doing fine. But George Bailey is not a common, ordinary yokel. Well, what's your point, Mr. Potter? My point? My point is I want to hire you. Hire me? Uh, I want you to manage my affairs, run my properties. George, I'll start you out at $20,000 a year. $20,000 a year? You wouldn't mind living in the nicest house in town, buying your wife a lot of fine clothes, a couple of business trips to New York a year, maybe once in a while Europe. You wouldn't mind that, would you, George? Would I? 
Do you think he's just an average yokel? I don't think he's an average yokel. He's a total yokel, Carla. <laughs> he, uh, I mean, he does seem like he's quite bright. He's very good at talking to people, at calming people down. We see that in several instances in the film. I don't know about this, right? Like, I look, he's a vandal, right? We see him on his first date with Mary breaking windows in some abandoned home. I don't know what the deal is with that. <laughs> It's a little bit uh, pedophile-y. I mean, I, I think she was 18, but he had to ask her about this. He, he's several years older than that. Like, they're I mean, not in the same age cohort. I feel like 18 and, like, 21 does not make you a pedophile. Uh, no, uh, he was a little older, I think. But but even still, it just was a little bit, like, she's a little girl. Like, he was unsure, uncomfortable about the age difference, but decided to go with it. Um He's a little bit rough with people, right? Like he like shakes people a bunch. Yeah, there's a lot of shaking in the movie. Yeah, like when yeah. he gets upset, like he gets upset. That's true. I mean, he never actually hurts anyone, I don't think. But yeah, there's some shaking, which is not good. Yeah, he's I mean, not very not kind. I, he's just a he's just a yokel. I don't know about that. I mean, I don't really know what a yokel is, but <laughs> it's, a, it's what George Bailey is. It's George Bailey. Did you know that in that scene when they're throwing rocks at the window of that house, Donna Reed like nailed it on her very first try in the film and they thought they were going to have to edit it in or something but she just crushed it right away well good for her for being a vandal too (laughs) i mean i think that's pretty awesome apparently she played baseball as a kid so all right let's let's talk about the money here so he made 45 dollars a week yeah so that comes out to like 2300 ish a year which uh Sounds pretty bad by today's standards. If we put that into an inflation calculator, it's going to spit out that it's a little over $35,000 in $2022. But that's not really an accurate portrayal of the purchasing power that you would have with that salary because we hear them talking about the price of houses back then, and it was in the range of like five to 10 grand. Well, five grand back then would have been like $76,000 today. I don't know about you guys, but I haven't seen any houses on the market for $76,000 anytime recently. So there are a lot of things, housing especially, that have outpaced inflation by a lot. Education would be another one that definitely falls into that category. So it's not really a fair representation to say it would be like making $35,000 today. However, that's what the inflation calculator spits out, so I think it's still an interesting number to ponder. So Mr. Potter here is offering an 8.5x increase on the salary that he's making, right? He's going to jump from like $2,300 up to $20,000 a year. That, if you put that into an inflation calculator, spits out $305,000. And by any measure, that is an extremely healthy salary by 2022 standards. Yes. Uh, if anyone, management of my company is listening, I would I would be interested in an 8.5x raise. Just FYI. Okay. That's good to know. I'll pass that along to, you know, colleagues of yours that I see. Um, I do think it's interesting that George Bailey decides very, very quickly to turn this down. I mean, you can hear at the end of that clip, he's tempted and he thinks about it for about a minute and a half, I'm going to say. And then he's like, wait a second, wait a second. I I don't need to think about this. I don't need to go home and talk to Mary about this. The answer is no. And he just basically storms out. Well, listen, Carla, 
if someone is offering you an eight and a half X raise, I would like, I would like you to come talk to me about that. <laughs> okay. But here's what's interesting. I mean, only to a point though, right? Like what if someone propositioned me for, you know, $305,000 to sleep with me? What if, I mean, at some point maybe we should cover indecent proposal. So <laughs> it would be that kind of situation. You wouldn't want me to come to you and talk about that, right? You'd want me to just be like, thanks, but no thanks. I'm pretty happy with the guy I've got. Well, I mean, I don't know. You should, <laughs> okay. you should come talk to me. Let me to be, it's an okay. interesting story. I, I prefer okay. that you bring it up at some point. All right. Well, All here, right. here's the question. Like, surely there's at some financial condition and some amount of money where that's not a crazy thing to consider. I mean, I don't know. Well, I mean, well it all gets back to your values. What is it going to do to the relationship? What is it going to do to like your sense of self-worth? How badly do you need that money? What are you going to actually do with it? What is your life like already? I mean, these are things that have to go into an analysis of whether you're going to make a decision that kind of compromises your moral values, right? And I think I'm bringing up this crazy prostituting example because that's kind of how George Bailey views Mr. Potter, right? Working for him would be compromising all of his moral values in a not totally unsimilar way. So in what ways is it compromising his values? Is it that Potter will become the only game in town? Or is it that he just has to work for Potter and um, operating those residences and properties that he would manage, which many of which may be like commercial businesses, not just residential? Is it just that those would be just such a difficult thing to do that the way that Potter would want to do it is so opposed to what George would prefer to do that he can't stomach it? What, what do you think it is? Well, that's never made clear. And those are great questions. And when you are talking about that sum of money, you would want to be clear on all of those questions, right? Like what exactly is it that I'm going to have to do working for you? Because I need to analyze whether I can stomach it or not. I think it's a big fat ego problem on this George Bailey. I think he thinks I'm the only fucker who can run this place. Wow, that was a little bit over the top, my bad. Uh, but really, I, I think he thinks the, he's the only person who can lead the building and loan successfully. And if it's put in anyone else's hands, it's going to fall apart. I think he's got a big ego. Well, maybe that's part of it. I mean, I think he is concerned that if he goes to work for Potter, the building and loan will fall apart and Potter will be the only game in town. But... Maybe that's a little egotistical. On the other hand, he doesn't seem to have anybody else who's interested in the job except for Uncle Billy, who we know is woefully incompetent. Yeah, he'll run into the ground for sure. Yeah, I mean, he does. So it's not crazy for him to think that things are going to turn south pretty fast. It it doesn't seem like he's living in the poorhouse. Surely there's some smart person who has aspirations in some sense who could come in and do this. Yeah, maybe. And I I mean, I think what probably should have happened is when George agreed to take on the position after his father passed away, he should have said, look, I'm going to do this for a little while, but this is not what I want for the rest of my life. That's what he did. He was going to do it for four years. Well, but I mean, that's only because he was waiting for his little brother to come home. Like, why is there, why does it have to be a Bailey? Can they not find anybody else? I mean, Harry doesn't particularly want to do it either. So is there nobody that they could find in like a neighboring town, maybe, who could come and take over this business? So yeah, but I still think going to work for Mr. Potter 
would mean like really turning the screws on people's thumbs in a way that he's going to be very uncomfortable with and potentially running the kinds of businesses that he's not morally okay with. So I understand where he's coming from here. I think he should have done it. Listen, (laughs) he didn't want this job in the first place, right? He didn't want to work at the building alone. He had these dreams of going off and building things and traveling. Go work at this job. Potter's offering him a three-year contract, right? He's going to make eight and a half times what he would make per year for three years straight, if not longer. Who knows? Maybe he actually likes it. Um, But he could also get enough money to set his family up for success. He's got some responsibility to take care of his mother. He could pay her off, make sure that's taken care of. Um, He wanted to go to college. His parents didn't save any money to help him do that. And he was going to have to pay his own way. He's got a wife. He's going to have kids. He could go pay for them while he's going to school and set up the life that he really wants. And at some point, it's not his responsibility to go take care of every person in... uh, Bedford Falls? Yeah, I was going to say Potterville. Uh, (laughs) That's the alternate reality that we're trying to keep from coming into existence, Robert. That's what would be better. Mm -hmm. Uh, No, it's not his job to take care of Bedford Falls. It's his job to take care of himself and the people around him that he cares about. And I realize that is all of Bedford Falls, but at some point, he's got to look in the mirror because things don't go that well for him. He eventually ultimately contemplates suicide because he's really that unfulfilled in his life. And this could have been a way out of that. Well, I mean, he contemplates suicide because he thinks he's about to go to jail. And he's just at a very, very low point. So I don't think it's fair to say that it's just his the life that he is living overall that drove him to that. It was a very specific instance of tomfoolery on Uncle Billy's part that drove him to this. So I think he's a guy who gets wound up and at some point he snaps. He's got a rage problem. <laughs> he does. He does get wound up. I, there's no arguing with that. The dude needs a therapist, stat. But I don't know if that means he should have taken the job with Potter. There are other ways that he could have, you know, wiggled free of these constraints that he had in Bedford Falls. But I think you're missing the whole point of the movie here, Robert, which is that ultimately happiness doesn't come from material things. It doesn't come from the accumulation of wealth. It comes from helping other people and building a community around you. And at that, he has succeeded in spades. So I tend to think that he has made a lot of good decisions in his life. And sometimes the things that we want in our youth are not necessarily the things that would make us the happiest as we get older and we look back on that and think, oh yeah, maybe that wouldn't have been such a good idea. Or maybe you did something and it wasn't such a good idea. I think this is just a few years after the run on the bank day, though. I don't know. Well, anyway, if you've watched the movie, you understand that he didn't take the job. Things don't go perfectly well at the building and loan. He thinks about suicide. He meets with Clarence the Angel and gets to see what life would have been like if he'd never been born. And for him, that life was horrific. He somehow snaps out of that and goes back to his regular life where everyone's there and he's so excited to see them. He comes home and is the charming parent you'd hope he would be. And our next clip, which we're going to play, is uh, everyone in the community is coming together because they've realized that he has this problem. It's totally unintelligible. There's just a mob of people coming into his house. (laughs) You can hear little bits and pieces, but there's probably 15 or 20 seconds where it's hard to quite understand. Uh, But you know the scene. You know what's happening. George, it's a miracle. 
miracle. It's a miracle. Oh, look, Daddy. Oh, who's going to come, Daddy? Who, Daddy? Come in, Uncle Billy. Everybody in here. George, Mary did it, George. Mary did it. She told some people you were in trouble and they scattered all over town collecting money. Didn't ask any questions, just that George in trouble and tell me you What is P.I. George? Merry Christmas. I wouldn't have a roof over my head if it wasn't for you, George. Just a minute. Just a minute. Quiet, everybody. Quiet. Quiet. Now get this. It's from London. Oh. Mr. Gower cabled you need cash. Stop. My office instructed to advance you up to $25,000. Stop. Oh. Hee-haw and Merry Christmas, Sam Wainwright. Oh. Oh. A toast <laughs> to my big brother, George, the richest man in town. I mean, if that doesn't just make your heart just uh, soar a little bit. You mean like the 87th time one. where that <laughs> dorky guy says hee-haw? What, what was that? That's so freaking weird. I think it's just supposed to be there to demonstrate that they've been friends since they were little kids, and it's like their inside joke. Yeah. That's, all. That's the only point that it serves I don't for think me. it was ever funny. I don't think anybody ever really liked it. I, I imagine everyone's like, dude, stop saying that. Like It was okay. dumb when you were 11, and it's dumb now. Okay, Mr. Potter with no heart. So I think we first should explain that the reason people are bringing in all this money is that crazy Uncle Billy made a terrible mistake. He was supposed to take $8,000 of the building and loan money to the bank to deposit it there. And because he's crazy Uncle Billy, he gets distracted. Yeah, he, had to, he was bragging about his nephew's success as a war hero who'd you know, was getting the Congressional Medal of Freedom, right? Like, he he was taking credit for somebody else's bravery. Uh, yeah, I think that's right. Anyway, he's chit-chatting while he's holding $8,000, which, again, you have to remember, I mean, that's a lot of money today. That was a ton of money back then. And he is just careless with it. He's got it in an envelope, and he's talking to Mr. Potter, and it gets mixed up with a newspaper that Mr. Potter has. No, it's a newspaper that Uncle Billy has. He's showing the stupid thing about his nephew being the war hero. Yeah. He's, it's not just that he was talking and took his eyes off of it. He was being a clown. Yeah, so the newspaper with the money folded into it gets handed by accident to Mr. Potter. And when Billy goes to deposit the money, it's not there. He starts panicking. And this is what leads to George Bailey, you know, being so despondent and contemplating suicide. So they're thinking, you know, possible jail time for, I guess, I don't know what it would be, but potentially something like criminal negligence. I don't know. Yeah, the bank inspector was there and the money didn't add up because mm-hmm. Uncle Billy lost it. I, I really don't know why they think there's any sort of criminal issue here. I don't know enough about banking law to even begin to guess at it. Well, the, the only issue would be for Uncle Billy, right? He went to go deposit well, the money. There was a deposit slip, and the guy's like, well, don't you think you're forgetting something? George, George Bailey, in his big heart, he's taken the fall for him. So it would be potentially George who would be facing the consequences for it because he's the one who's claiming responsibility. I don't think there's I, any evidence. I mean, yeah, How are you going to convict? At some level, I kind of do blame George, like... Should we really be trusting Billy with large sums of he cash? He should have like fired this? that guy a long time ago. Yeah, he's yeah. worthless. 
So anyway, that is what leads to the Baileys needing all of this money and all of these wonderful townsfolk showing up with little, you know, bits of cash and, you know, Sam Wainwright coming in to save the day. So it's a very touching scene with a very cruddy backstory of Uncle Billy just completely screwing over the building and loan. It feels like an old-timey GoFundMe sort of thing, right? Yeah, yeah. Like you're just putting it out there that you you need some help and people are chipping in. No, that's exactly what it is. It just it feels more personal than I feel like GoFundMe does today because he knows all these people. And, you know, we hear in the clip people are coming in saying, I wouldn't have a roof over my head if it weren't for you. I'm not going to ask any questions. You just tell me it's George Bailey. He's helped me so many times. I'm going to be there for him. So I think... The whole premise of the movie is really that social capital, which is kind of a crude way of putting it, is much more valuable than actual material wealth. That's the heartwarming aspect of the film. I mean, if he'd had $8,000, it probably would have been fine. (laughs) I mean, that's true, but he did have $8,000. He just had it in the goodwill of his friends, right? So, I mean, it's a valid point. There is more than one way to be wealthy and to have access to wealth and having people who think the world of you and are willing to come to your rescue whenever you need it is a form of wealth. It really is. So George Bailey, the way that he primarily helped people was he extended loans to folks whose credit maybe wasn't super great. He also um, was pretty generous with the loan repayment terms when people were struggling to make the money back. All these folks were giving him money right now. Do they think this is a gift or a loan? I don't know. And that is such a good question that I never thought about until we started talking about this. I mean, the scene is so touching and heartwarming. It certainly feels like it's a gift. Yeah. I mean, there's a basket full of money. There's nobody keeping track of who's putting the money in there. So it definitely feels like a gift. But the gift that george was giving was mostly favorable loan terms it seems like a loan is the appropriate thing sam is advancing him cash does that mean that it's a loan we don't we don't know we just don't know but i do think there is an important lesson to learn there which is if you are in a situation like this where somebody that you really care about is in trouble and does need financial help you better be darn clear about what the terms are because otherwise somebody could walk away thinking it was a gift and the other person's walking away thinking it was a loan. So that can get uncomfortable pretty quickly. Uh, also, if you are going to treat it as a loan, what do the terms look like? Are you expecting any kind of interest back? Is it just pay me back when you can? I mean, it's it's a house worth of loan mm-hmm. for this one guy. Like, there's yeah. no way. What do you? He's not paying that back quickly. No, he's definitely not. Yeah, I mean... I I actually one of the things that I think is interesting in the film is that George and Mary seemingly buy this like really really rundown property and then the one where they broke the windows the on one, their first date the one where they broke the windows and they are trying to slowly fix it up it certainly seems like they've done a hell of a job in fixing that house up because it goes from this dilapidated shack to a lovely home by the time we see it at towards the end of the film, which costs a lot of money. So I don't, I, they may be like sweat equity geniuses for all I know. I mean, they may have a lot of equity built up in that house. That's an interesting facet of the movie that could probably 
be like a whole thing in and of itself. But we really don't have too much information to, I mean, it would all just be speculation as to how much money they got the house for. They may have gotten it for like virtually free because no one wanted it. Who knows? But it is a very good question whether this is a loan or a gift that all these people are giving him because that's a lot of cash. So he needs his money because Potter has his $8,000. Um, What's going on there? Should Potter be watching his back because law enforcement are coming for him? A hundred percent, yes. So Potter has committed actual theft. That is just black and white clear. Like not disputable at all? No, he has done an absolutely despicable thing here. Finders, keepers, losers, weepers? No? So under most state statutes, I would venture to say all state statutes, but certainly under most, there is going to be a provision that says the retaining of property that you know is not yours when you can identify the owner very clearly is theft. So if anybody figures out that Potter has done this, and it is a small town, people talk, also he should be reporting this on his taxes. So like there should be some accountability for this somewhere down the line. It seems quite clearly to be theft. So I feel like the first, you know, dozen times or so that I saw this film when I was a lot younger, I just thought like, oh man, what a bad person he is. That was morally wrong. It is morally wrong, but it's also criminal. So if somebody mislays something at your house or, you know, like accidentally leaves something behind in your car or your purse or anywhere, and you know that it's theirs, you have a legal obligation, not just a moral obligation to give that shit back. That does not belong to you. Do you have to like actively go seek out how to give it back? Like where does your obligation stop? Well, it gets a little thornier when we're talking about property that's truly lost, right? So like if you just find money on the street and you don't know whose it is. Let's say you find a wallet. There's gonna there's an ID in it. Yeah, if that's the case, then you have a clear way of identifying the owner and you have a legal obligation to give that back. But do I have a legal legal obligation to go find them? I think you have a legal obligation to take it to the authorities. I mean, you don't have to actually go to their house. That could potentially be dangerous even. But yeah, you have an obligation to make reasonable efforts to get it back to the owner. Or you could just leave it on the ground. Uh, yeah, I mean, I suppose that's also an option. There's no legal the, obligation no, to engage. But the good thing to do, Robert, a.k.a. Mr. Potter with the dark heart. I want to know what Potter would do. Would be, would be to, well, we know what Potter would do. He'd straight up steal it. But... The moral thing to do is to take responsibility and make sure that it ends up in the right hands. So yeah, Mr. Potter, you are a thief, sir. We do not care for you. You may have just been a shrewd businessman up until this point in the film, but by the end, we see that you are just a straight-up evil criminal. Wow. Carla is harsh. I mean, it's true. Tell me it's not true. All right. Maybe he is the villain of the movie. Yeah, I think that's pretty clear. Okay. Well, I hope some of you like It's a Wonderful Life more than I do. It's an okay movie. I see it a lot. It seems like it's on, you know, annually. I mean, I will say the American Film Institute, their number one movie of all time is Citizen Kane, which I do not agree with. So we're not totally on the same page, but we are with this one. It's high up there. So if you haven't seen it in a while... Go give it a rewatch because your heart will be warmed. 
well, go be your best version of George Bailey and build up your community and, and build some of that social capital. It'll pay off in the long run and, and lead to some unexpected happiness. I sure think so. Well, we will catch you next week, guys. And until then, we hope you have a fabulous holiday season and we'll catch you next time. Take care.